Al-Jazeera podcast. Smoke from Canada's wildfires is choking millions of people there and along America's east coast. Global warming is blamed and the impact of human-induced climate change has long been felt around the world. So what are governments doing to tackle it? I'm Imran Khan and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests. In Madrid, Dr. Maria Nera, the Director of Public Health, Environment and Social Determinants of Health at the World Health Organization. In Brussels, Emma Budd, a clean air lawyer at Client Earth, an environmental law charity. And in Delhi, Abir Balla, a youth environmentalist and advisor to the board of Commonwealth Human Ecology Council. A warm welcome to you all. I'd like to begin in Madrid with Dr. Maria Nera. Uh, the UN has declared access to a clean and healthy environment as a universal human right. But that's non-binding. So... Countries don't have to pay attention to it. Is this part of the problem that there simply isn't any law with the teeth that gets into this? I think it's very sad to start to... Uh, we need uh, The fact that we need a resolution to claim that we all have uh, should have access to a clean and healthy environment. I think it should be something by default. But unfortunately, it's not the case. And the air we breathe, for example, is responsible every year for more than 7 million premature deaths. So, yes, if we need a legislation, if we need to use the law to go a little bit uh, further on protecting the health of our people and their rights to breathe clean air and have a healthy environment, I think we should do it. And this will be very helpful as well. But, the, Doctor, there is a, a mechanism for all of this. There is the UN Security Council, and this is a, now a security issue for many countries around the world. So all of the mechanisms are there. What are the problems? What's the pushback from countries to try and pass a resolution? I think uh, we are still far from recognising that we are facing a big crisis, which is called climate change. And we are facing a crisis due to the fact that we are destroying our environment and polluting, fundamentally polluting everything we touch, the water we drink, the air we breathe, and then the food we eat. So unless we decided on a very strong way, with a very political um, decision and, and, and courage as well, to stop pollution and making a, a healthier environment, a healthier development, transitioning to clean sources of energy, for instance, and stopping the combustion of fossil fuels, we will, we will keep, uh, keep uh, killing ourselves and being responsible for the little destruction that we are facing every day. I think we have a lot to, to gain if we take the right decisions on, on this acceleration of, of the transition to renewable clean sources of energy, better urban planning, better design of our cities to protect our citizens, and of course, less aggressive agricultural practices, and looking at a, a very strong agreement at the COP28 on climate change with a very strong political decision, and of course, investments, and accelerating the level of ambition that we have now, and of course, the, the speed to take decisions. All of that to protect the health of the people, in addition to the health, of course, of the planet, or the sustainable development, but more than anything, our health is already paying the price of having pollution and climate change affecting us in a dramatic way. Uh, in Brussels, Emma Budd, you've just heard what Maria Nera has uh, said there. A lot of things need to get done. None of those things are happening. Why is that? As your experience as a lawyer, you must come up against this every day. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, so it's interesting we talked about um, the UN General Assembly's resolution and the fact that there is no codified law. Um, I think that really hits it on the head. Um, here in Client Earth, we would argue that uh, breathing clean air is already a human right. Uh, and that's a right that exists, and it's a right that states have an obligation to comply with. Uh, but until this is codified within a legal framework, I think it's uh, easier to try and evade that obligation. And that's why we try and bring uh, litigations against uh, decision makers, against public authorities, to draw to their attention this is an obligation which they already have and which they should already be enacting policies to comply with. Uh, Abir Bola, let me bring you in here. Actually, this is quite personal for you because you suffered from a bout of bronchitis, which led you to become an environmental activist. Uh, and you think, uh, do you think that the youth, which is what you're focusing on, the f that's literally the future? I don't want to sound like Winnie Houston, but like that's the future, right? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, as you said, for me, of course, um, I was very indifferent to climate change when I started out. But when I actually learned that climate change, uh, that, that air pollution uh, is harmful for my health, uh, that's when I woke up and realized that this is something I want to work on. You know, my doctor told me that I was having these seasonal allergies uh, because of prolonged exposure to air pollution. And that continues till date. And I think, you know, I, I have a bit of a pessimistic outlook on the human race in that I think everyone wants to know what's in it for me. And I think as an environmentalist, that's what I really try to address in all the audiences that I'm talking to. Um, I think I try and, you know, let that reflect and, and I, you know, try and tailor the message to the audience that I'm talking to and make them understand why air pollution is an issue that affects all of us and why we need to start working on it um, as, as a collective. Um, you know, rather than having this blame game between institutions, whether it's state governments, central governments, uh, the UN or, or any other bodies. Um, Emma, uh, Abiru makes a very good point there. Like, we, there is a disconnect, isn't there, between, say, for example, what the WHO say, which is there is a certain level of air that's n not pure, and then, say, for example, the European Union, you say, actually, the air in Europe is perfectly safe. There's no standards here, right? And that is a big problem. Um, I think, yeah, and I completely agree that that is a big problem. Um, part of the problem that we have in Europe is that there is a European legal framework, but it's outdated, um, and that's currently in the process of being revised. And the most important thing is that, that does listen to and comply with the latest science, because the science is clear, uh, and the WHO released their recommendations uh, almost two years ago now, and they tell us what the maximum acceptable levels of air pollution are. And so states have an obligation to listen to that if they are really going to comply with their obligations to protect the life, the health, um, the private life of their citizens. And they have to be following the science in making laws which properly affect people, because which properly protect people. Because at the end of the day, of course, that is the purpose of the law. Uh, Dr. Maria Nera, I mean, the WHO doesn't have enough teeth, we've established that, to actually force institutions like the European Union to act. But there are things that you can do. What are those, what are those things that you can do? Well, first of all, we are putting the, the scientific evidence on the table. I think no politician, no government, no policymaker, no mayor around the world, anyone will be able to say, I didn't know. Uh, we, the, the, the evidence, the scientific evidence is very clear. We are issuing reports very often using this horrible number of the 7 million premature deaths 
caused by, by the bad quality of the air we breathe, the fact that more than 99% of the people, I mean, almost 100% of the people around the world is breathing air that is not respecting the standards recommended by WHO. Of course, it's not the same to live in New Delhi. The standards will be uh, completely different from those recommended by WHO than in Switzerland, for instance, where the difference with WHO standards is, uh, is lower. But still, the fact that we, we are putting the evidence, we discuss with the governments, we have uh, resolutions of the World Health Assembly, we, we talk with ministers of health, we talk to ministers of energy, because this is very much about uh, an energy issue. We go to all the, the COP, I mean, the climate change negotiations. We describe what are the effective interventions to reduce air pollution. We have plenty of evidence demonstrating those uh, those interventions, what it works. And we have as well systems and methods to calculate, to estimate if you go for these standards, like in European Union, for instance, look at the number of, of deaths that you could avoid if you are a little bit more ambitious. So it's a question now that uh, there is something difficult to understand when you are saying there are 7 right. million premature deaths. Right. And still, there is not a strong reaction. It's, it's very, very difficult to understand what's happened there. Why not? Let me bring in Abir Ballah here. Abir, uh, one of the key things here is getting governments to try and do something outside of institutions, outside of ASEAN, for example, or the European Union, or any kind of institution. What's the Indian... What, what's your, the reaction to you when you speak to politicians, when you speak to uh, people? Is there any interest in trying to change things? Or are you up against a brick wall? So it's it's a bit of both, right? Because um, there are more and more people who are becoming receptive um, to you know the, the idea of working on air pollution. But unfortunately, I, I feel like we're stuck in a catch-22, right? Let's take the example of the firecracker ban, um, which has been there for the past five, six, seven years in, in India. And all the competent authorities, whether it's the Supreme Court, whether it's the National Green Tribunal, everyone has banned it. But this ban falls on deaf ears. So, right? so, so the government says, we've done our bit, we've introduced a ban, and society is not following it. And on the other hand, we have social groups who are saying, oh, you know, air pollution is too large an issue for any, any of us to deal with. Um, it's, it's governments and it's corporates who have to tackle this. So to come out of this vicious cycle, to come out of this catch-22, I think um, that's where youth and social groups are, are important because there's, there's no doubt that, you know, uh, I think a large part of the burden lies on, on institutions and governments, but it's, it's also on society and youth groups and social groups to get the ball rolling. We have to take the first step because to any rational politician, uh, they, want, they want votes, right? And to get votes, they have to know that society actually cares about an issue and they're willing to act on it. So I think there's a very strong um, need for different groups to come together. And that's where we, we face our challenge, right, to your question. Uh, I think there's, there's a lot of myths around air pollution. A lot of people who I talk to, right. whether they're class three students or whether they're from retirement homes, some people think air pollution is just a seasonal issue. Some people think it's restricted to North India. So really busting those myths and bringing about proper education and awareness would be the first step towards tackling that issue. Uh, I want to bring Emma Budd in here. Even 10 years ago, the fact that uh, your job probably didn't exist in the way it is right now. You're a clean air lawyer. 
even 10 years ago, that must have been quite surprising to people. Have attitudes shifted in the, with the people that you speak to in the European Union right now? Are you being listened to? Um, well, I'm quite optimistic. I hope that we're being listened to. Um, it's certainly encouraging that the European Union is currently in the process of uh, updating the legal framework. It represents a recognition of the fact that uh, we now know more than we did uh, 15 years ago, the last time that the European air quality law uh, was revised and uh, came into force. So there is certainly uh, an increasing recognition of how damaging air pollution can be and what level of air pollution is the maximum acceptable level. So I, I think thanks to the work of, um, for example, Dr. Neira, there is, from what I can see, an increasing awareness. Um, of course, we could always be doing better. And I think this falls within uh, again, this point about providing better information to the general public about the health impact of their air pollution. Again, the law could help with this if there was this codified uh, codified human right for a clean and healthy um, air environment, then governments would, I think, sit up and uh, take more ambitious steps to uh, clean up the air and also to inform their citizens. So these kind of two things go hand in hand. It's, uh, states taking more robust action to clean up the air and uh, citizens becoming more aware of the impact of air pollution on their health and demanding more from their governments. And we're already some way along that path, but we could always be doing better. Well, I mean, let's talk about this always be doing better because do you have, I mean, as an environmental lawyer, um, do you have an impact on policy? Are policymakers listening to your recommendations? Are they absorbing that into any discussions about the law? Talk us just quickly through the nuts and bolts of all of this. Um, yes, yeah, certainly. We've definitely seen an impact of our work. Um, our litigation has been particularly effective. So to give you an example, a few years ago, we at Client Earth brought a case against the Brussels government um, for their failure to properly put in place a monitoring network, monitoring uh, the air quality in the city, which, of course, is the first building block to understanding the quality of the air that we breathe. Uh, we won that case. And as a result, the Brussels government had to uh, adjust the way it was monitoring air pollution to bring it in line with the law. And since then has very publicly and openly stated that it was our litigation uh, which prompted them to uh, comply with the law more effectively, to, to comply with their obligations better. So our uh, litigations are definitely, we're definitely seeing them take effect. Dr Nera, that's the question I want to ask you. Um, Emma Budd has had some success in getting uh, influencing laws that are being passed. She's effectively a lobbyist for planet Earth. Planet Earth does need lobbyists, right? We, that's what we need. We need somebody to be able to sell this idea to the United Nations. Do we need more lawyers involved? Is this a legal issue, do you think? I think it's definitely the, the, the role of lawyers and that the litigations is extremely important. Uh, I would like to mention as well the case in UK that uh, for the first time ever, we have on the death certificate of a little patient that passed away 10 years ago for the first time on her death certificate is written air pollution as the cause of death and not only asthma. So I think this was a, a extremely, a very nice uh, legal battle as well that was won. But now we need uh, a scale up on all of that. So to scale up, what we need is uh, the commercial determinants. I mean, there are commercial interests, that's very clear. We need to, as a society, understand that if we don't accelerate this transition to green, green, uh, green sources, clean sources of energy, we are 
are all of that very much at risk uh, from from our health point of view. First of all, second, we need more awareness as as uh, is is increasing, no doubt. But still, we need citizens to put a lot of pressure on their politicians, and for mm. that, they need to understand the very clear connection between exposure to air pollution and lung cancer and uh, chronic respiratory infections uh, and stroke and uh, cognitive uh, development and all of those uh, behavioral diseases that we uh, are Dr. seeing. Dr. I'm just going to bring in, I'm just going to bring in Abid Balla here. Abid, um, we've been talking about the law as possibly one way of actually getting governments to change. But that might work in the European Union. In the subcontinent, um, there are many, many other issues that require legal minds. It's also very expensive. Uh, have you ever thought that I need to push the Indian legal system, maybe get this to the Supreme Court? That's the kind of route I need to go down. Or do you think for India, for the subcontinent, maybe that's not the right approach? No, I think uh, the legal route has been explored. Uh, and, you know, of course, there's there's always scope to do more and to do better. But I feel like where we're lacking in, in uh, not just India, but I think an issue that I've seen, uh, you know, talking to all my counterparts in South Asia as well, is more of an issue of implementation uh, as well as social and political will, right? So, for example, as I said, there's a firecracker ban or... We've had a National Air Quality Commission, which has been set up, but it's it's largely ineffective, right? Um, this, this committee has been constituted and reconstituted to make state governments and central governments work together um, over the years. But we we see that, by and large, in, in several states in particular, the numbers, the AQI numbers aren't going down, uh, yeah. right? So I think... There are a lot of laws, like I earlier mentioned, the firecracker ban, uh, but enforcement is the issue. And that's where I think the role of urban local bodies, the role of municipal commissions, and, and to a great extent, state governments um, also comes in. I mean, uh, the, the state government of Delhi has been doing a fantastic job over the past two or three years. But the Sorry, problem Abir, is I'm just going to disturb you there because I want to bring Emma no. Budd in here. This is a very interesting conversation about enforcement. Yes, you can pass all the laws you want, but you need countries to sign up, you need countries to enforce them. How's that going to happen? Um, by giving civil society and citizens uh, a route to access to justice. Um, and I think that's really important. Again, we come back to this point about educating that Mr. Buller has mentioned um, about citizens being aware of the impact and things like air pollution are having on their health and therefore empowering them with the knowledge to hold their uh, governments, their decision makers to account. But on the other hand, also empowering them with the legal tools that they can go to court and hold their governments to account. And again, that's a matter of codification. That's a matter of making sure that you do have access to justice provisions within these laws. Um, and that will correspond both to those will benefit both uh, individual citizens being able to go to court and civil society. So NGOs, again, going and holding governments to account and making sure that they are complying. So that's why we need these this these dual tools, both a high level of ambition in terms of the actual limits on air pollution and also a strong implementation enforcement network, which means that civil society and citizens are able to hold decision makers to account. Uh, we've talked so far, Dr. Nera, about lawmaking. We've talked about enforcement of those laws. But if you're going to pass anything, the United Nations is a key player in all of this, you have to offer incentives. 
countries have got to be able to think this is in our interest. And that's the only way they'll act. What incentives can the United Nations offer, the WHO offer, other than putting the information, like you said, on the table? Well, the, the incentives we are offering are the best possible ever. I mean, the number of lives you can save, the number of diseases you can prevent, and even if we go to numbers in terms of economy, the, the, the total amount of uh, resources, economic resources that you can save, because our hospitals are already paying, our health systems are already paying an incredible price to treat all of those chronic diseases. So the incentive is definitely prevention of diseases, reduction on those uh, millions of deaths, better services, reducing uh, health system cost, and of course, uh, making sure that uh, our population will understand that. I think when you have mothers, like uh, one mother in UK has been able to change the law almost, um, more the people is aware that uh, air pollution is affecting dramatically our health, more they will vote uh, use their vote to, to decide who is the mayor that uh, will be the one responding and putting endorsing all of those uh, laws, who is the government that will be responding the better to our demands for air quality. So I think uh, the United Nations can decide and put declarations and, and put uh, even sanctions. We don't have the capacity, but definitely by uh, producing every year a, a tracking of who is doing what and how many lives you are not saving and you could avoid uh, the deaths, uh, I think that would be the most powerful uh, uh, kind of uh, reporting mechanism and monitoring on how many lives are you not saving every year. Sorry, uh, Dr. Nero, we are running out of time. Now, I have a question that I want to ask all three of you. I'll begin with Abid Abdullah first. COP28 is coming up. Uh, that's one big opportunity for countries to come together. Very quickly, what do you want to see from COP28, from the Climate Change Summit? Absolutely. I think uh, one is very topical, of course. I'm hoping that, you know, we, we've seen that there's international intervention um, on the grounds of, of humanitarian uh, reasons in, in you know, um, across the world. But I feel like climate change, air pollution need to become issues um, wherein the international community can come together to actually put pressure on, on other countries to help their citizens, right? That would be the first thing. Second, I would say that, you know, we're seeing more Sorry, and more Abhi, young I'm people... I'm going to have to stop you there because we are running out of time and I do want to get to our other guests as well. I do apologise. Uh, Doctor, uh, sorry, uh, Emma Budd, you're a lawyer. Legally, what laws would you hope to see at least being talked about at COP28? Um, I want to see uh, high ambition when it comes to setting limits on the air pollution that we can breathe, as well as a strong implementation and enforcement network, uh, which means that those laws are respected and that citizens and civil society can hold their governments to account to respect their human rights to breathe clean air. Uh, Dr Nero, what do you hope for from COP28, just very quickly? We will have a health day for the first time ever. I will love to see all the countries endorsing WHO's air quality guidelines. That will be a dream. And obviously, drastic uh, reduction of emissions. That will be so good for public health. I want to thank all our guests, Maria Anera, Dr. Maria Anera, Emma Budd and Abid Bala. This episode was produced by Priyanka Gupta, Victoria Gatenby, Abla Klar and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Nanda Kishore, and the program was edited by Leroy Khonjalwaya, Lynn Engwin, and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening.